and welcome back to the Guidehouse Transportation Insights Podcast. I'm Sam Abu-Al-Samad, Principal Analyst here with the Guidehouse Insights Transportation Team, uh, and I am joined today by a full suite, including a new member of the team. Um, that's uh, Jacob Foos, who has just recently joined us. Uh, we also uh, have along with us today Oliver Dixon, Mike Austin, Sajia Banada, Scott Shepard, and Edie Wilson. Uh, thanks, everybody, for joining us today. And um, let's start off with you, Edie. Yeah, sure. So um, today I wanted to mention BYD, um, China's top EV producer's decision to open a plant in Thailand. Um, the plant's annual capacity is expected to be 150,000 units, um, and the goal is for these units to be exported throughout Southeast Asia and Europe. Um, it's also notable that the developer group, WHA group that um, BYD is working with, has set aside more land um, for additional EV production. And this production is expected to start in 2024. Um, this plays into Thailand's larger EV policy, um, their 30-30 policy, which is 30% of electric vehicles or 30% of their vehicles in general that they produce, they would like to be electric vehicles by 2030, hence the 30-30. Um, and so they're doing this in two ways. Um, the first is that they have a lot of subsidies. Um, they've also cut their import duties on EVs from two percent or from eight percent to two percent for the next couple years. And the reason for that is to increase demand, domestic demand for EVs, um, really get that market started. A few years from now, they're expected to reverse some of these policies and then really focus on building up their domestic industry. You kind of see that with um, BYD's investment or production decision starting in 2024. Like that's as soon as two years from now. And this fits into Thailand's larger, I guess, role as They've been nicknamed the Detroit of Asia. You know, they're, I think, the third largest EV production producer in Asia and the 10th largest in the world. Um, and they're really trying to pivot from just vehicle production to um, EV production. And yeah, so that's what I wanted to, to mention. So is this BYD's first major um, assembly operation outside of China? Um, I don't actually know for sure, but I think it's their first major production in Southeast Asia. And one of the, I guess, surprising, I don't know if I would call it surprising, but they definitely, there was a lot of competition in terms of where in Southeast Asia, in ASEAN, this plant was going to be placed. And I think before they decided on Thailand, um, there were people who assumed that it would go to Vietnam. Okay. Yeah, I know uh, there are uh, some other manufacturers that are assembling vehicles in, in Vietnam. And of course, there's the VIN group that is launching yeah. uh, VINFAST, um, or at least transitioning VINFAST to electric vehicles. 
Um, and so that's, that's going to be an interesting market to watch. Um, for the, the batteries, are they also going to produce batteries in uh, Thailand or are they going to bring those in from China? So far, it sounds like they're going to bring them in from China. But again, like that additional land for additional production has been set aside. So there's some speculation that maybe additional pieces of this value chain will be eventually located in Thailand. Have they said whether they plan to export from Thailand? Yes. Um, So the goal is that their production in Thailand, they'll export throughout Southeast Asia and then also to Europe. All right. Well, then let's uh, let's move on to Oliver. Thanks, Sam. Yeah, um, just really a, a very brief observation that it's not, well, it is news-driven in that at the recent IAA show in Germany, Quantron, which is a German company, basically uh, their their DNA lies in recycling uh, second-use trucks, taking them from ICE to electric. Um, They garnered a lot of attention at Hanover um, by showing a a fuel cell uh, class 8 articulated track unit um, based on the MAN TGS chassis. Um, now I'm going to try and I've been trying to join a few dots on this to be honest with you. Um, MAN is part of Trayton. Trayton of all of the truck OEMs is probably the least bullish stroke, most bearish on fuel cell, and has gone pretty much all in on batteries. Now. This Quantron deal, it's a Quantron-branded truck, but clearly it's an MAN, what we call in the business, a glider kit. So it's a cab, wheels, um, steering wheel, just no driveline. Um, It strikes me that this is an interesting, albeit in retrospect, predictable development. If we assume that the value chain is being reset as a result of moving away from ICE, which I guess it is, um, then realistically, guys like Quantum, guys like Ballard, uh, who, which manufactures the fuel cell for this, um, tier ones like Allison, which manufactures the, the E-axle for the truck, um, they their role in things changes um, because the value the revenue value of the truck is shifting. It's shifting to as a service. And so realistically, the value to the OEMs in terms of vertical integration, which has been the mantra of the industry for the past 25 years, um, that kind of goes away. So I, I wonder if we're going to see more of this. I wonder if we're actually going to see more, if you like, sort of horizontal integration as a result of hydrogen, which is a complete, you know, a screeching U-turn from industrial strategy for the last quarter century. Um, as I say, it's I'm still in the process of joining the dots on this one, but I, I think it's something really worth keeping an eye on. Um, if there is some way to go in terms of battery development um, before 
diminishing returns kick in, then clearly there's a lid on R&D spend at the OEMs. Um, you know, at some point, decisions are going to be taken as to do we put our dollars into batteries or do we put them into fuel cells? If the answer is the former, then clearly, you know, looking at more third-party supply, looking at more of a horizontal integration may well be a kind of appropriate approach now. So that's that's my two cents for this week, Sam. Thanks, Oliver. Um, so a uh, question about um, the repowering market in Europe uh, compared to North America. I, I know at least you know for some classes of vehicles here in North America, uh, there is uh, a tendency to, to repower the vehicle at some point in the in the vehicle's lifespan, uh, put a new powertrain or rebuilt powertrain in there. Is that something that is also common in Europe? And um, you know, with the the electric transition, do you think that you know that we will see more uh, companies uh, stepping up to offer you know some sort of electrified repowering options for trucks? I think uh, your second question first. Yeah, I, I do. I, I think bluntly, the OEMs really uh, they they were caught napping on electrification. Um, I can think of two or three companies in the UK which were screaming for electric trucks four years ago, simply because to deliver to deliver stuff into central London, um, some some of the London councils, some of the London um, regulations were actually demanding on contract that goods were delivered by ZV vehicles. So, yeah, I, I think um, the potential for probably more niche applications and um, repairing is there. It, in Europe, it's always been a slightly sort of grey area because a lot of repairing in North America has been basically trying to avoid a couple of old emission standards, which were pretty nightmarish. Um, in Europe, the nature of the way trucks are financed, uh, pretty much all contract hire, um, really renders repairing. It is relevant on the sort of the margins of the industry. But as I say, this now is a, you know, potentially a very good way of actually making that work. Traditionally, trucks in Europe, um, because of the, the cadence of the, the emissions regulation, they've run a first life, run a second life, and then they've been popped on a boat and sent to the Middle East or, or Africa. Clearly, with after-treatment systems, with the need for ULSD, um, Euro 6 product is probably unsuitable for you know, quite a lot of the traditional export markets. So this this seems potentially a way of actually getting a lot of old trucks out of uh, out of fields in Germany. Um, it's going to be one to watch, I think. One one more question I had. Um, you mentioned earlier that uh, Triton uh, VW's VW Group's uh, truck division uh, has been less bullish or, or bearish on fuel cell technology as opposed to batteries. Um, Triton did acquire Navistar uh, in, what, 2019 or 2020, 
Um, mm-hmm. And Navistar had been working on uh, fuel cell trucks um, since tra- since Trayton took over Navistar. Has that shifted? Is, is Navistar moved away from fuel cells? Uh, I, to, to be blunt, Sam, I, I would have to go away and make a couple of phone calls on that. My assumption is that it would have done. Um, I think, you know, Trayton, there's always a, within the truck industry, there's always a sort of a, an attempt to differentiate uh, when the product is effectively a commodity, which is obviously a bit of a challenge. Um, let me uh, let me come back to you on that one for the next call. All right, thank you. All right, uh, let's go to Mike. Um, hey, so uh, yeah, last in the last sometime in the last week, I spoke with Danny Atzman from a company called Cognata, and they build simulation software. Um, and so we're primarily looking into it to learn more about autonomous vehicle simulation and you know how companies use that and the different layers of it because they're building cities uh, you know to run their cars through but they want uh, you know realistic models for it and it was the the interesting extra piece out of it that I got was um, companies like Cognata are building these hugely robust models you know they have like an entire AI for the traffic and they model it based on traffic cameras and there's different personalities, uh, so to speak, depending on the city, you know, like Parisian drivers drive different than drivers in Austin based on the traffic patterns and the vehicles and just the general character of the traffic. They model pedestrians and bicycles. And so they're, they're building these huge models and the uh, usefulness of it extends just beyond things like autonomous vehicle research. So that was the interesting thing to me. And I, I would kind of equate it to early smartphones, you know, that they came out and it was like, you have a screen and you have your music on your phone and you have data, but we don't quite have data yet. And eventually it got us to today where our phones can do so many different things. Well, they're building these uh, simulation models uh, for a lot of reasons, but one major reason is autonomous vehicle research. And they're building it up into something that's useful for uh, the metaverse, which is kind of a buzzword and, you know, means a lot of different things. But in this case, it's literally a digital model of the world that, you know, you have this, uh, again, depending on for autonomous vehicles, you, you take a couple of shortcuts in simulation. So you don't need to, you know, really closely model the interaction of the tires. You just need something that's close enough so that, you know, it, it replicates the real world. You don't have to go right down to like the little tread blocks, but a lot of the model is incredibly sophisticated and so they're at a point where they can use it for other uses. So one example he gave me was, I think it was um, Palo Alto, but one of the cities in the Valley, they modeled uh, the traffic difference between changing a dedicated bus lane to a traffic lane and the difference in the speed that would, uh, the average traffic speed. So um, I just thought it was a really kind of fascinating piece where on the surface level, you think we well, got to you know make this model to make sure that autonomous vehicles can drive safely. But once you have the model, there's all sorts of other things you could do that, you know, I don't think we've fully realized yet from things like traffic modeling to, you know, even infrastructure, you can put in a building and figure out, you know, what the demand is if you have other elements of it, like the grid or water supplies and things like that. So, um, uh, yeah, that's about it. 
Yeah, this this concept of of digital twins, you know, at, at increasingly large scale is a, is a really interesting one. There's a lot of potential use cases for it, and uh, it's interesting to see that you know companies like Cognata and, and some of their competitors that are doing simulation tools originally developed for automated vehicle testing and development are now looking at how can they utilize those same models for for these other applications like to help cities with their with their planning uh, their traffic planning and so on yeah I mean an example too is again when you look at civic planning now you know you do all sorts of um, extra studies on you know whatever it takes to uh, comply with code or, or whatever oversight, like, uh, you know, traffic or, or environmental concerns. And at some point, you could get to a point where you don't have to, you know, do this manually, so to speak. It's just sort of, well, we built it in the city model. And, you know, here is our anticipated load on um, public transit when people leave a concert, if they're building a new stadium or something like that. So. How how are they getting the data to build the models? Are they taking that from their customers that are doing AV testing using using the data collected by those sensors, or are they also combining in other sources? Uh, you know, because I think mean, like part of this, you know, when you're looking at a, a digital twin environment for a city, you also want to have the buildings, you know, so you can track the visibility at various intersections, so things like that. Yeah. So Cognata, um, they they mostly. Uh, they're mostly describe themselves as tier two. So they supply uh, companies that make autonomous full stack systems like, like Hyundai Mobis would be an example of a company, you know, a similar company to what they supply to. And they're building their model using a bunch of different sources. Their main uh, offering is the, um, is the modeling itself or, you know, the modeling of the interactions, um, you know, mostly the dynamic pieces of the puzzle. So, uh, it wasn't clear about, you know, where they get the model. It was mostly multiple sources. So I'm sure it's, you know, existing databases and then, um, yeah, things that things from their partners or, or other places where you see, you know, like mapping cars that drive around and, and capture cities. All right. Anybody else uh, have anything on this one? I've got a quick question. Um, Mike, do you have any idea how um, this type of uh, modeling um, apply to for, for traffic modeling. Um, how would that compare to the um, um, the existing tools which City uses, like like Visim and so on, for, for tra- traffic modeling? Do you see any specific advantages um, over what's what's used at the moment? Um, I mean, I don't know enough about the topic to <laughs> about traffic modeling uh, and and you know the way City plan it. But my guess would be this is using. Um, you know, it's, it's a model that's based on the real world. So it's, it's made to be like as close to real world as possible, but because it's a model, you can tweak it. So, uh, and, and because it's, it's using some form of, you know, interaction within the model, right? So each car is driving and it interacts with the other cars. And I don't know if the, if the existing tools do that. So you can say we can increase, I think you would have more confidence in, um, hypothetical scenarios. Like if you, increased the traffic volume or you increase the population in one place. Um, this is building the results based on as you know, something approximating a hu- you know, the actual interactions of the traffic other than, you know, versus just saying we have this many cars and these are the average speeds and these are the stops and, and speed limits. 
Thanks, Mike. So they're actually modeling, um, taking, collecting data, and, and creating uh, an AI model that has that does some randomization of the the traffic based on the 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 typical flows in that area. Yeah. Okay. So create creating scenario creating synthetic scenarios based on real data. Yeah, and so in their example, they have um, they have a few little demo videos on their YouTube channel, but. Um, you know, there's one where it's like there's a lane ending, and so traffic backs up at the lane, and you know the cars have to find a way in. And true to life, some cars stop and let someone in, some people don't. Or you know, if there's enough of a gap that someone can nose out, and the traffic behind has to slow down, it works exactly like that. Okay, great. It'll be interesting to see how these models have to change over time as either the number of automated vehicles in these cities grows or like if there's bike share programs that or scooter share programs that come into the city, how they're going to have to manage um, those new shifts in consumer or transport behaviors. I don't know if that's if that would have a major impact or or. I think that, that's an interesting question. I, I might have to follow up and ask that, you know, yeah, how does, you know, does autonomous, do autonomous vehicles impact that traffic model and at, at what point of autonomous population does it make a difference? Yeah. Interesting. All right. Uh, Saji, what do you have? Hi, everyone. So um, I thought I'd talk about um, some of the, um, incre- the increasing push for, um, safety regulations in, in micromobility, um, specifically for, for batteries and, and chargers. Um, so micromobility, um, obviously safety has always been a hot topic, but normally just related to road safety and accidents um, or irresponsible riding and, and parking of the vehicles. Um, but um, the safety of the batteries um, and chargers themselves is, is increasingly been in the, in the spotlights, um, like even here in the UK over, over the past few days. Um, so um, there are lots of um, battery-related and charging-related fires that have occurred for micromobility vehicles, especially for e-bikes um, and e- um, um, e-kick scooters um, in particular, because quite often these are, are charged within somebody's house because they're quite um, portable. Um, and, and quite recently, there, there was a, a, another tragedy in, in India where a, a boy died when um, his father had been charging his um uh, his scooter in the house, um, and uh, it burned down his house. Uh, uh, the boy died, unfortunately, and, and there was uh, serious um, injuries to the uh, to the family. Um, apparently, it, it was um, an NFB um, lithium ferrophosphate battery, um, and it's, it's thought that overheating was the cause of of, of this fire. Um, so, there's been an, a, a large number of these types of incidents in India over the past few years, and um, the, the government has. Um, is, is about to release a set of safety standards for, for batteries um, after after the several, several deaths uh, that have been brought, brought to, to, to their attention. Um, and um, it's it's bringing in a number of measures um, to try and control the amount of, of overheating. Um, for example, um, I think some kind of additional isolation between cells, um, some additional um, sensors as part of the battery management system uh, to address um, overcharging or overheating or um, short circuits. Um, and, uh, and also um, features to try and um, prevent overcharging um, of, of these batteries. Um, also outside of India, um, in the UK, it's, it's recently made the news here um, because a similar 
a somewhat similar incident happened, um, um, probably, I think it's about one or two months ago now. So um, there was a large uh, block of um, apartments or flats which, which caught fire in West London. Um, now, um, I think the, uh, the, uh, um, the resident of one of the flats had been charging his, um, his e-bike there um, and uh, it, it overheated, um, burnt his um, apartment and uh, spread to other parts of the tower block. And um, it was it was in a, a I guess um, in a location that was quite near a, a recent um, similar tragedy in, in London um, a few years ago. Um, so this made quite a lot of news, and the local borough in, in London has, has been making calls to, um, to to regulate the sale or the sales of um, electric vehicle electric bike batteries and chargers. Um, and um, one of the um, electrical safety bodies in the UK had been um, examining batteries and chargers which are for sale in the UK, um, including retailers such as Amazon, um, eBay and AliExpress, finding a large number of, of um, chargers which um, which are inappropriate, not in, even contain fuses. Um, and so um, there, there are many calls for the government uh, in the UK here to, to start uh, regulating the sales of these uh, chargers. Um, the retailers that I mentioned, I think they've all pulled off these um, chargers for sale from their sites. Um, and uh, yeah, one, one other um, similar incident um, in, in Dublin, um, this wasn't in the house. In, in fact, um, um, it was within a shopping centre or a shopping mall um, where uh, somebody had just left their bike in the shopping, uh, in the shopping mall while he went shopping. And, um, and actually, in this case, his bike just spontaneously combusted. Um, it wasn't actually charging, but the battery just uh, caught on fire and then um, exploded. But this was caught on a security camera. So this, this um, once again... Um, um, generated a lot of attention. Um, and um, I, I would say that, yeah, the, this is kind of painting a picture of an increasing number of, of these types of battery and charger safety issues. Um, they haven't been so much of an issue in the UK or, or Europe so much because um, I, I, I suspect that a lot of this is down to the, to the lower cost um, batteries and chargers which are often used in, in places like um, uh, Asia Pacific. Um, but however, in the UK, we'll find quite a lot of... Um, um, like gig economy workers using e-bikes, which are grey market imports or sometimes just um, DIY conversions based on um, um, modifying uh, normal bikes with uh, batteries and motors. Um, so, um, so yeah, I think we're going to start seeing increasing regulation and, and perhaps uh, a related uh, increase in, in prices for, for these uh, types of vehicles. It's interesting that um, that the the, the first. Um incident you mentioned in um, India involved an LFP battery because those are mm. typically regarded to be safer. Uh, but I think, you know, in, in general, uh, you know, for these smaller vehicles, let's call them, uh, you know, the um, charging is more of a challenge than it is for larger vehicles because of the fact that the, the battery is inherently uh, needs to be uh, more compact. Um, there's, there's less room for thermal management. They're generally air cooled batteries. They're not liquid cooled. So thermal management is more of a challenge. So it's a, a lot of the same kind of problem that, um, uh, you know, that, that we had, um, that, that we've had with mobile devices, for example, like phones and tablets and computers. Uh, but also uh, a few years ago when, um, hoverboards first appeared in the U S market, uh, there were quite a few incidents 
uh, with those um, being when they were left plugged in uh, with those overheating and catching fire and, and several different models of those were recalled as well. So do you think that, um, you know, do you think that there's a, a solution for this to manage the, the temperatures and, and manage the, uh, uh, the charging so we don't overcharge these batteries? Um, yeah, I, I think perhaps the proposals made by the Indian government sound reasonable, um, like implementing sensors um, connected to the bat- bat- battery management system to, to try and keep an eye on potential malfunctions or short circuits, uh, overheating, um, and so on. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I do think that that potentially is a solution. Um, I, I think, as I said, I think the impact on the cost of this equipment is is, is un, uncertain, but um, obviously it will impact more the the lower cost um, um, batteries and chargers. Um, right. So, so I, I think out, um, none of the major kind of... Um, OEMs, which are based outside of Asia, have been implicated in these types of issues, as far as I know. Um, I know several of the Indian OEMs have been mentioned, however. Um, but um, as I said, I, I think I think the solution is probably more applicable to, to lower cost manufacturers and it may, in fact, be uh, an opportunity for them to, um, I guess, um, improve their um, reputation for, for their export markets. Yeah. So my question is, um, yeah, is this sort of just like whack-a-mole though, in terms of like how, as this keeps going on, there's going to be more devices and more batteries. And you mentioned, you know, the online retailers, which are just a wash in brands you haven't heard of that offer products, you know, all sorts of things, whether it's chargers or batteries or the actual scooters and bikes themselves. So how, uh, it, long-term, is that something where it's just up to the government uh, safety bodies sort of policing this or uh, is it is it going to keep is this something that's going to perpetuate because of that the fact that we have this these vast online marketplaces and a bunch of knockoff products that may or may not be safe yeah I, I think um, I think yeah it's a good, a good analogy with the, with the whack-a-mole but I think that um, um, but by not only setting these um, uh, regulations, but there needs to be some kind of way to enforce them. Um, especially, for example, um, if you were ordering something from the UK or, or from the US that's been imported from another country where there's less regulation um, on the manufacture of, the, of these um, accessories, so I think that um, that's probably where the, the grey area will, will continue to exist. Um, and um, I, I think that. Um, certainly in India uh, and other countries when these types of events get a lot of media attention, then I, I think that uh, it's something that's going to be taken seriously because it's, um, it's obviously a, a safety a safety risk. Um, and you know, even in, in the UK, um, the transport authorities are, um, they, they actually don't permit certain types of electric micro-mobility vehicles um, on the transport system for that particular risk. So it's something that you know, regulators are, are very much aware of um, and, um, I think you know, having a high-profile disaster, for example, burning down of a block of flats or apartments, is would be sufficient for, for that to be taken quite seriously. Uh, and I will wrap it up with uh, some news out of uh, Sweden this week uh, from Volvo. Uh, over the last week and a half, uh, Volvo has started to um, tease out uh, some information about their next new model, which is called the EX90. Uh, this is a replacement for their current XC90, their, their 
their large SUV, uh, which is currently offered with uh, gas, diesel, or plug-in hybrid variants, uh, diesel only in Europe uh, for now, I think, although they may have even discontinued that there as well. Um, <clears throat> but the EX90 is uh, built on a new uh, battery electric only platform uh, that will be uh, debuting uh, early 2023. The official reveal of the, the production model was coming on November 9th. Um, and um, last year they revealed uh, a concept called the recharge concept, uh, which is believed to provide a, a preview of the styling direction for this new vehicle. Um, there's a lot of interesting technical details. They haven't, they haven't given us any detail on the propulsion system or batteries or anything yet. Uh, but there's some interesting safety details that uh, uh, Volvo has released about the EX90, and which is not surprising given uh, Volvo's longtime emphasis on safety, um, going back to the 1950s at least. Uh, so um, in the first um, presentation that they had with their new CEO, Jim Rowan, about a week and a half ago, uh, they reiterated um, that uh, the EX90 will be the, their first model to feature standard LiDAR sensor uh, using LiDAR from a, a company called Luminar. Um, and um, that's also going to be standard on uh, the Polestar 3 uh, model, which is Polestar's a spinoff from Volvo, uh, and it's going to be utilizing the same platform. Uh, and uh, that will be initially used for their autom- uh, for their advanced driver assist systems. Um, so for things like automatic emergency braking and um, adaptive cruise control and, and other features. Uh, and over time, uh, as Volvo validates the safety of more highly automated capabilities for that vehicle, um, they will be um, rolling out uh, software updates. Uh, and unlike uh, some companies, um, Volvo plans to do that testing internally uh, and not provide beta software to their customers. Uh, they want to be sure that it's actually safe and, and works properly beforehand. Um, and over the next probably two to three years, they eventually want to get to at least automated highway driving capability with the EX90. But what's uh, what what's actually more interesting of the the information that they've been releasing in the last week and a half is the interior sensing capabilities. A lot of the emphasis in prior years uh, has been on the the sensors that are looking outward from the vehicle to understand the environment around the vehicle and help keep it safe. But um, Volvo is also looking inside the vehicle, um, so they're going to have a driver monitor system, as a number of manufacturers do now, that utilizes infrared cameras to ensure that the driver is actually continuing to watch the road and, and being attentive. Um, they're actually using two cameras mounted at two different angles uh, for this. And one of the things that they, they talked about in the presentation is not, um, not just focusing on uh, so-called uh, visual distraction. So um, they don't want to just know that the driver is looking away from the road, perhaps looking down at a phone or looking at the screen in the car or, or you know, talking to uh, a, some another occupant of the vehicle. But they also are looking for um, for other um, things that could be problematic from a safety perspective. Uh, so obviously, if the if the driver appears to be drowsy uh, or potentially impaired. Uh, they want to provide alerts. And if the driver doesn't respond um, to have the vehicle pull over and come to a safe stop uh, and then call for help if necessary. But another 
interesting function of this that they want to implement is what they're calling cognitive distraction. And uh, so if you've, if you've ever spent any time driving long distances on a highway, you've probably experienced this where your eyes are on the road, you're looking ahead, but your, your mind starts to wander, especially if it's a long straight highway and you're perhaps not really as attentive as you should be. Uh, and I'm sure everybody, every driver has experienced this at some time or another. And um, they haven't released details on exactly how they're going to detect this cognitive distraction, uh, but they're not the only ones working on this. I recently had a demo during the Detroit Auto Show from Harman of a system that they're working on, trying to do the same sort of thing, thing trying to detect cognitive distraction where the driver is looking ahead, looking at the road, but they're not really paying attention. Um, and if they can actually achieve this, this could be a major safety benefit. Um, one other uh, safety feature that Volvo has talked about for the EX90 is it will be the first regular production vehicle to feature interior radar sensors. Uh, so we, again, we've had radar on the outside of vehicles for adaptive cruise control and blind spot monitoring for more you know, uh, close to 20 years now, uh, or actually more than 20 years. But they're putting uh, millimeter wave radar sensors inside the vehicle from a company called Akineer. Uh, and they'll have up to seven of these sensors. They, they're about uh, a quarter inch uh, square sensor. It's about five, a little over five millimeters by five millimeters for the, the sensor chip. Uh, and they'll be, they can detect with this movements of as little as one millimeter. So what they can do is they can detect if there is someone, uh, either a person or an animal in the vehicle that is alive, that's breathing. Um, and so if the driver gets out of the vehicle and say a child or a pet is left behind in the back seat, um, the sensors will detect this. And when the, if the driver tries to lock the doors, the door won't lock, um, they won't lock the doors and it will provide an alert to the driver you know, to check, uh, the back seat, uh, to see if anybody or any animal has been left behind. And again, this is this is an important safety feature. Uh, there's been uh, here in the U.S. alone, there have been uh, several hundred children that have died over the last 20 or so years um, from so-called hot car syndrome, uh, where when a car is sitting out in the sun, it, it becomes like a greenhouse. The interior temperature of the vehicle gets much higher than the exterior ambient temperature, um, and it can cause heat stroke or or other um, problems. And so they're trying to prevent. Uh, prevent this from happening uh, with these interior sensors. And over time, they'll add additional functionality to that um, to, to utilize those sensors in, in other ways to help keep the occupants of the vehicle safe um, at all times. So uh, some interesting stuff coming from Volvo um, with uh, the launch of the EX90 and, and other models that are following along. Sam, have um, you heard anything about how you think or how different entities in this space think customers would react to some of these technologies, being able to sense them or collect data on them? Yeah. So this, you know, this is an area that there's certainly concern about with interior sensors, uh, with privacy. Um, you know, with the radar sensors, um, that shouldn't be too much of an issue um, because they're not you know, the radar sensors aren't able to, for example, distinguish who a person is that's in the vehicle, only that there is something living in one of the, the seating positions. Uh, so for example, you know, if you leave your, leave a bag in the backseat of the car, 
you know, that's not moving. That's not going to be detected as something to, to provide an alert about. Um, and so you're not going to be able to identify who individuals are in the vehicle with something like the radar sensors. With the infrared cameras that are monitoring the driver, there is the potential uh, to identify that individual. And, and in fact, there has been discussion about using that for various authentication features. Um, for, for example, you know, different drivers get into the vehicle and the camera detects who it is and then, um, sets up, you know, automatically sets, you know, personalization features for that individual driver. Um, again, there are a number of manufacturers. GM was actually the first to do this back in 2017 when they launched Super Cruise. Um, and numerous manufacturers are now using similar infrared camera systems. And they use infrared so that they can see through dark sunglasses or see the driver at night. Um, and uh, using this for uh, assisted driver assist features, uh, particularly hands-off features, uh, where the driver still has to be um, paying attention and be alert to the road. Um, in all the cases that are in market today, um, none of those systems are actually recording any of the data. Uh, they're only using it in real time uh, for detection, you know, for, for detection of the driver's current state. Um, so um, privacy at this time is not an issue. It could be in the future. And I suspect that what we will see uh, over time is um, some regulations that uh, require some degree of privacy protection uh, so that uh, so the information is either not stored or it's not transmitted outside of the vehicle. Are, are there any other secondary implications you can think of this? Like, you know, your your car giving you some health alert that's, you know, like the radar can detect an irregular heartbeat or, uh, or maybe even, you know, geofencing a, an HOV lane? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's that's certainly a potential one. Uh, the HOV lane is, is a good one. Um, you know, so uh, you could you could detect uh, you know if there is a second occupant, a second or third occupant in the vehicle, and and prevent uh, the vehicle from entering the HOV lane. Um, the health uh, detection or, or um, you know some sort of uh, wellness detection is something uh, that has been worked on. In fact, the, the Harman demo that I mentioned, one of the things that they're uh, doing with that infrared camera is uh, they're able to detect uh, the driver's heartbeat uh, from their face, uh, from seeing small changes, uh, fluctuations in the, the temperature across the driver's face. Uh, they're able to get a fairly accurate, not, not, I mean, it's not obviously not accurate as accurate as an EKG, um, but enough to detect, uh, particularly to, to detect changes in heartbeat. So if there's suddenly uh, an increase in the stress level and your, your, your heart uh, speeds up, your pulse starts to speed up, um, you know, then you have the potential to, to take certain actions within the vehicle. And, and this is actually something uh, more than a decade ago that Ford demonstrated is this driver workload uh, modeling system. And they, at the time, they were doing it using sensors uh, in the seatbelt, uh, thermal sensors in the steering wheel, and also capacitive sensors in the steering wheel uh, to try to detect the driver's state and make adjustments like, for example, enabling automatically enabling the do not disturb mode uh, in, in the infotainment system. You know, so incoming calls or messages would be muted uh, or you know, maybe 
changing the changing the music that's playing or or just reducing the volume of the audio system if they're you know the combination of the exterior and interior sensors were detecting that you know maybe the, there there's a change that the driver needs to pay more attention to the road uh, and you could certainly do something like that with these infrared sensors as well uh, so there's there's a lot of potential things that could be done to improve uh, driver safety and well-being inside the vehicle. All right. Well, with that, uh, we'll call it a show, and uh, we'll talk to you next time. Thanks, everybody.